Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, Thunderbirds are go. Right, we have a very stupid opening, so if you haven't heard it before, apologies in advance. I cannot wait. In the year 1966, Thunderbirds were go. I had a pretty good idea you just take it that way. Yeah, I thought about doing the whole five, four, three, two, one, but it might be have been cool obnoxious too. if I dragged it out. Yeah, it takes more time that way. But uh, yeah, so you you have already uh, introduced the movie, so I guess we'll introduce ourselves. This being Matt, this being Luke. You are in a sci-fi sanctuary. Um, I I'll, I'll try. I, I have to kind of. St- I, I was telling Luke I have to stick to my golf announcer voice a little bit because the 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 fam sleeping in the next room. Uh, I did mention we we were talking Thunderbirds. Uh, uh, you know, I was like, "Oh, this is kind of a you know, this is cool." And, and my wife was instantly like, "Oh, I know that. Yes, do it, please. Use your room." I was going to go like somewhere else slightly, so but I'll, I'll nice. try and be polite about it all. Uh, I can be as loud as I want because I long ago accepted I'm the loud neighbor in this building. <laughs> so <laughs> any any songs will be up to you. Uh, joining us today to talk about that Thunderbirds are are go is the sun. Jerry Anderson, creator of that very show. He uh, has been doing audio dramas for Terra Hawks, Doctor Who, and so forth. Hello, Jamie Anderson. Thanks for joining us. Hello, both. Thanks for having me. But, uh, oh, that's very cool to have you. No thanks necessary. I actually, <laughs> this is one of the rare occasions where I told my mum who we had on. <laughs> oh, well, if I'm mother worthy, Luke, then that really is something. So thank you. I'm honored. <laughs> So yeah, the main topic today is going to be be Thunderbirds or Go, but um, one of the reasons we're we're chatting now is you have a book coming out next month, getting into the the uh, the background of UFO and and Shadow with no W. So, uh, well, what's what's the dilly on that? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we should clarify Shadow with no W first for anyone who doesn't know what's going on there. <laughs> Uh, Shadow with no W is the Supreme Headquarters Alien Defense Organization, which featured in UFO, which was uh, another one of Dad's series, their first foray into live action in 1969-1970. And it was set in the then future year of 1980, so very futuristic. Uh, uh, And uh, basically it was a, a secret organization, as you've got in so many Anderson shows, even like Thunderbirds, except this secret organization was based beneath a film studio providing the perfect cover for fighting and uh, fighting off an incoming invasion of aliens who like to steal human organs. Uh, so quite dark subject matter, but filled with all the usual Anderson tech and hardware and stuff like that. And this book, the UFO Shadow Technical Operations Manual, is basically if you had been recruited to join Shadow 
you will be given this book to tell you everything you need to know about fighting aliens, driving the vehicles, flying the craft, uh, and where to find the um, canteen uh, in, in Shadow HQ. Oh, that's really fun. Matt had led me to believe it was just going to be a very dry history of the production of the show or something. It's like, oh, he's written a book about UFO. I was like, oh, okay, cool. I probably won't read it. <laughs> no, we, don't, we don't do dry. We don't do dry. The, the whole thing, the in-universe thing is cool because mm. I think when you're watching the shows as a kid, there's an element of you which is like it, it aspires to do the thing you're watching on screen. And so if that is joining... Moonbase Alpha, in the case of our Space 1999 manual, then you want to feel like you live in that world and you want to get more insight into it and feel like you're part of it. So I, I very think, much in-universe. I think the first job I ever wanted was to pilot a Thunderbird. So, Well, there you go. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, well, we'll have to work on the International Rescue uh, manual next, I guess. In that case, oh, I, yeah, I will be all over that. <laughs> I, I guess we'll talk about, uh, at least for Luke myself, how we kind of came through this i i'm the american so i'm the, I'm the odd one out here um <laughs> you know th so for for me i do remember uh channel 69 in atlanta it's uhf uh in the 80s you watched it through like a field of static and i would watch ultraman and thunderbirds through this field of static and and and, and love it and you know i kind of forgot not forgot but you know it went on the back burner for a long time i saw team america somewhere in the intern um as far as far as the Anderson production, the Century Twenty One production that really gets my goat, it's uh, this the Space Nineteen Ninety Nine stuff that I just keep rewatching. So <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely in my goat. Um, UFO, I actually didn't know so well. Uh, it, it did play like kind of like a prime time in the states in the seventies, but that's a, a little before my vintage. So uh, today, I actually watched a few episodes just in in fast motion, uh, you know, so I could like like get it in. Mm. But uh, and having to slow down sometimes because you know when they're just flashing 1980 to you and stuff, you got you sometimes you got to watch it oh, properly. Yeah. And I, I will be watching more of it properly. We just I was doing a cram session basically. Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, for me as a British kid born in 1990, like Thunderbirds was an institution, and the bit that Matt maybe you don't know is Thunderbirds had this massive resurgence in the 90s. One of the channels, I think it was it Channel 4, just they started airing BBC it again. Two. It was BBC2, that, that makes sense, because Blue Peter. Um, and it was huge again. And like the toys were the best sellers again, to the point that um, a different TV show, Blue Peter, which I guess is like a Mr. Roberts type thing for slightly older kids, they did a series on how to make your own Tracy Island because the Tracy Island was selling out too fast in the stores. So when I was a little kid, Thunderbirds wasn't like an old history piece. It was the hot show that me and my friends were watching. It completely came around again like it was new. I guess and... that's the Ultraman trajectory in Japan, more or less. Well, but um, Ultraman, they make a new one every year for like the next generation of kids. Yeah. For Thunderbirds, it was just 30 years after it aired. They just put it on again and sold all the toys again and it worked. Um, no. You mentioned about like UFO being surprisingly dark. Oddly, I think Thunderbirds is the odd one out because stuff like Stingray and Captain Scarlet is dark. It's that's well compared to Thunderbirds, right? <laughs> I guess. I mean, none of them for kids shows feel like kids shows. Mm. I think uh, it was one of Dad's Dad's things: was don't speak down to your audience. Right? So they were making the the most epic 
looking and feeling show despite the fact they were made with marionettes so, um that they possibly could so you you will have hopefully felt that that they felt bigger and grander mm. more perilous and more kind of important than other kids stuff at the time because i i there was a, i watched the rebooted captain scarlet more recently but i haven't really watched captain scarlet since i was a kid mm. and i kind of don't want to because in my head it was like a really serious drama for adults mm. <laughs> and like, my parents were letting me get away with something by staying up and watching it and i, oh, I don't yeah. want to dispel that by learning it wasn't so you you wouldn't be disappointed i mean there, there aren't many kids shows where in the opening episode the lead character is shot in the chest blood spraying from his hand clutching the bullet wound as he falls off a you know 600 foot high structure and, and plummets to his death i mean doesn't feel very kiddy to me. Mm. <laughs> Great. I'm glad to hear that. Before we move on from Captain Scarlet, though, I do have to quickly mention my best friend going up. His dad was the spitting image of Captain Black. Terrifying in that case. A little bit. So... He's, a, he's a very nice, unbecoming man. But yeah. just seeing him, he's like, that's Captain Black walking yeah. around in the flesh. He has the, the look and feel of a, of a zombie marionette villain, essentially, is what you're saying. Little bit, yeah. <laughs> Did you call him out on it? Is he ever? Oh, I definitely have told him. I definitely have told him to his face. You look like Captain Black from Captain Scarlet. Quite right too. <laughs> so, uh, Did oh, you yeah, catch much Thunderbirds as a child? I caught all of it as a child. Oh, excellent! Oh. Just now. <laughs> no, no, no. That's what I was wondering. Had you seen it as a child? Because it's one of those things. Everyone in the UK did see it as a kid and was sucked into that world and believed it. Whereas I wonder if when Americans don't come to it until adulthood, their reaction is probably very different. I had a weird thing. Okay, so this was in the 80s. Um, another one, which which I think we talked about in an episode, is uh, Lancelot Link, another show that I think MTV was showing at that time, where they have like the, uh, the chimpanzees like being basically prodded in horrible ways to be the actors um mm. and then i'd see thunderbirds and and little kid matt was like are, what's happening here because you know you have the super marionette mouth thing going and and i already knew that the chimps were kind of like being abused and it's like are they abusing these these creatures but they're just marionettes so it's okay <laughs> so you, you that's, never that's, sorry that's 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 10 year old life right but you never got i mean like 10 year old you never watched it in the mindset of like this is high drama and I'm completely not even noticing that they're puppets. It's like maybe has to be a little bit younger. Well, I had no context. I enjoyed mm -hmm. it, but I, I had no context. I couldn't understand. Same with Red Dwarf. When I first saw that at like 11 PM on a, uh, you know, American public television, it's got the big organ theme of what's happening. And then they're starting to make jokes. And I, I just like that. That was my favorite viewing of Red Dwarf ever. Cause I was so confused. Right. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the reason I say is because, you mentioned earlier, like Team America, well, police came out. And I think the way that treats it is not the way a British fan would have treated it. Team America, well, police, they just wiggle the puppets around. They don't even try and make them look good. Mm. And that's like, that's an, an American who never got it. Well, they make I'm, sure, I'm sure they liked Thunderbirds, but they never got it the way a kid who grew up in England would. Mm. Yeah, they, they make a joke out of the, the marionettes and Team America, like walking around a lot, which the, the you know, the 60s Anderson ones are just like like usually you know try and stay away from having these stupid motions <laughs> that's why we have like yeah. the uh you know the, the moving platforms 
Exactly. But, um, yeah, they tried to avoid where possible and have them sat on vehicles or, you know, on, like you say, moving walkways. Team America is definitely not an homage mm. to all things Anderson. It was it was Parker and Stone saying, what's the most ridiculous way we can make this? Oh, I remember that. We've seen clips from this Thunderbirds thing. That looks ridiculous. Let's do it like that. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased in a way, though, Matthew, because you're... You, Culturally, I always think there's a big difference between the US and the UK. UK, we are much more used to seeing human characters as puppets in a, a kind of dramatic, serious situation. Whereas I feel like in the US, human puppet characters are normally sort of comedic or weird or creepy figures. So culturally, we have the we, Muppets. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, but, but most of the successful puppet-driven stuff in the US are non-human characters. I think all the kind of the whole Henson heritage is non-human. Uh, and then you look at something like Team America, where it's kind of it's used in a way to mock. Uh, so it's it, there's a big cultural difference, and it 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 doesn't. I mean, it Space 1999 is the big one that made it into the states. Thunderbirds less so, whereas in the UK, Thunderbirds is the kind of jewel in the crown and i think there's a big cultural difference there well you will be very pleased to know that although it's not necessarily big in america it is huge in japan oh yeah my whole yes. family oh, was like impressed by the fact that we were doing this today so uh, again, I, that's why I get clearance for 11 p.m podcasting i've just been for a curry just now and there's a poster which i walk past every time i walk to that curry house where i go on a run on that route there's a poster for the thunderbirds i go reboot that's been up the whole five years I've lived here. Mm. And just recently, because it was the 55th anniversary, which is Go Go in Japanese, uh, they had a cinema re-release even. So, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, if anything, it's bigger here now than it is in the UK, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's it's got a massive cultural following. It is it is pretty amazing. There was, there was a Thunderbirds cafe in Tokyo for many years. It closed down a few years ago. Oh, amazing. So, yeah, very, diff very different kind of appreciation of the same show by different nations. Although you mentioned about, you know, the puppet heritage, whereas of course in Asia, there's a very long heritage of, you know, serious drama played out with puppets, be it shadow puppets or regular puppets. So it makes yeah. some sense. Now, um, Jamie, in the past week, we also had the pleasure of talking to Rod Roddenberry, another, uh, you know, son of a creator who rebelled with, star wars for many years before coming back and like kind of like <laughs> taking back his heritage of star trek and I, yep. I feel like i've seen you have a bit of a similar story here <laughs> yes Going, i'm afraid so. from, say doctor who and back yeah <laughs> can you tell us a bit about that uh, i wouldn't even say i've come back to be honest uh Matthew. so uh no so uh, rod is rod is awesome and we did a we did an event together a few years ago him him me and adam nimoy so it was like the the Sons of panel at the sci-fi convention. It was awesome. Um, but yes, Doctor Who, uh, there's a documentary called More Than 30 Years in the TARDIS featuring me and dad uh, from 1993, uh, in which he says, the greatest tragedy of my life is that my son, Jamie, is, and then I say, a Doctor Who fan. <laughs> um uh, and it's true, I became obsessed with it when I was like four years old. So just as the the actual run of the show was ending, one of my aunts bought me a copy of Day of the Daleks on VHS tape, which I watched incessantly. And then uh, my mum, probably much to the upset of dad, bought me a copy of uh, uh, an early Tom Baker 
story. And I couldn't believe this show had the same character played by a different actor. And this was incredible. How did this work? Uh, and then I was I was kind of hooked and uh, an obsessed little nerd. Uh, and now I'm an obsessed big nerd. Um, I mean, you, you probably can't see, but uh, over my office shoulder, you can see a bunch of Daleks. And I've got nine TARDISes in here, including one that is a third, a third scale. Uh, so, yes, uh, Dad found it rather tragic because he always felt like the aims and outcomes of Doctor Who were a bit more kind of cheap effects and wobbly sets uh, compared to his extremely premium approach to things like Thunderbirds and, and UFO in Space 1999. Um, but he, he kind of forgave me over time, I think. <laughs> I mean, he could be a little bit right, because like, I, I do like I, you know the past 15 years of Doctor Who I'm a pretty big fan of. But, uh, you know, in the 80s, I saw the, the you know, the, the wobbly sets. Mm. And I was like, what? And, and then I saw Thunderbirds with, you know the grainy static coming through on the UHF, and that 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 actually was the one that got me as a as a kid. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, it, partly because I was like, "Oh, this does look slick," and uh, I, I mean, as always, already an avid Trekkie. So if you're looking cheaper than the original series, you know there's a there's a bit of a hurdle there. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah. anyway, Matt yeah, Smith is, is my budgets. doctor. That's that's the one I obsessed on. Uh, yeah, could be the uh, name. Well, I, don't I mean, know. could be the Fez. I, Great name. Uh, I you're not wearing affairs, sadly, but a good name. Um, no, I mean Tom Baker was my was my doctor, uh, and then all these years later, I have ended up working with Tom, directing on uh, directing him on some audio dramas. Which um, if you told my eight year old self that, I think he might possibly have wet himself. That's very cool. Mine, weirdly enough, is John Pertwee because he just happened. He was repeating when I happened to be at the age to, you know, mm. watch reruns on BBC. And then yeah, again, I was very much into New Who. Um, yeah, it yeah. didn't it didn't make it to Japan with me, but I have a life size inflatable Dalek back in the UK. <laughs> um, my first Christmas after leaving home, he was my Christmas tree. We wrapped him in tin saw and put, put an angel yeah, on I've, set. I've I've had for five or six years in the states. Uh, sent it to my parents' house. Hadn't been to the states since 2010, so it's still sitting in my parents' house, which is a Lego TARDIS featuring Matt Smith and Capaldi. And if it ever does make it here, I'll be building it by myself because my daughter is too old to care about the Legos now. <laughs> well, I look, you can join me for the TARDIS building. Yeah, Just yeah, maybe I will. TARDIS building. <laughs> <laughs> That's geeky. Um, if you go to Japan, me... get that TARDIS and build it before you build that Enterprise I bought you, I'll be furious. <laughs> <laughs> before we get to much deeper i'll do a quick plot summary on the thunderbirds argo feature film good luck thank you
In 2065, the spacecraft Zero X is set to take a crew of five men on the first mission to Mars. Unfortunately, villainous spy The Hood has stowed away on board and manages to crush his foot in a hydraulic sabotaging the mission. Fortunately, Thunderbirds 1, 2, and 3 from the International Rescue Force are there to save the day, though youngest member Alan is feeling a bit low that he was not assigned a hero role. A few years later, Zero X makes its second attempt. The Hood also makes a second attempt disguised as Dr. Grant, one of the astronauts. But Thunderbird ally Lady Penelope discovers the ruse, neutralizes a threat through some spy stuff. Zero X achieves launch and the Thunderbird crowd goes off to party at the Swinging Star Club, though already grumpy Alan is left at home on monitor duty. That night, he has a bizarre dream involving an interstellar swinging star, Cliff Richards, and the Shadows. Zero X arrives on Mars, murders a Martian, and has to make a quick escape when the snake-like rock Martian creatures, uh, you know, try to retaliate. Once back on Earth, re-entry fails, and it's up to the Thunderbirds to save the astronauts. This time, Alan gets to be the hero, scores a date with Lady Penelope at the Swinging Star, and is subsequently stalked by his entire family, all with fake mustaches. When you put it like that, I, I can't imagine anyone not wanting to watch that movie right now. That's, that's what I aim to please. Before, before we'd met, I wasn't sure how irreverent I could get away with being about the material. But my main takeaway from this film was like, what's the point in being your Thunderbird if your dad's not going to let you get laid? <laughs> but, wow. But that- but then the the uh, <laughs> the other one is like, you go score tonight. You do a good job today, and you do one tonight. So it's kind of like they're egging them on. They all know what the deal is. <laughs> yep. Because, <laughs> yeah, the, it makes the Thunderbirds out to be the coolest guys in the world, right? They'll rescue everyone. They're ultimate heroes. But they're not allowed to go out and party because their dad's like, nope, you have to be here in case we have to go and rescue someone 24 7 this is serious business i mean just because they're related doesn't mean it's okay to slack off and not rescue people (laughs) um that is the entire purpose of international rescue after all um but it's it's weird that in the series alan was all really all about tintin Mm. uh and suddenly you know he's going for the upgrade and going for lady penelope instead it, it does lead to Lady Penelope feeling a bit smurfette in this movie. 
she's the one girl like all four of them know and they just go on dates with her they just ignore Tintin then right she's just there yeah but well, he's, he's literally out. like I can't go out with Lady Penelope well I guess I could go out with you Tintin <laughs> <laughs> the silver medal yeah a bit harsh that isn't it mm. one, one thing with the uh I guess we'll just talk a little bit about the, the voice actors and stuff but one thing that kind of breaks my mind uh, about most of these production the century 21 productions is the um the lead roles always having american accents mm. <laughs> i don't yeah. Yeah, that 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 confused me a bit as a kid i'm like okay almost okay. everyone has a british accent but not the leads because we got yeah. you know martin lando on space 1999 um I, sorry i've forgotten the ufo actor's name but he's using the, you know he's yeah. the uh, striker as the character right yeah so he's yeah. he's got the, that always seemed a little weird to me that confused me as a child as to the origin of these productions mm. i think well see <laughs> when you're making a production in the uk if you want it to sound expensive and cool you pretend it's american Okay, we flip it in the States, don't we? Yeah, if you want it to sound clever, you pretend it's British. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is though. It's all about sales. That was it. It was, you know, if we want to sell this to the US, which is the biggest market, then the heroes have to be American. Uh, so that was the the aim. And also, uh, Dad said one point in the past that there's something much more shiny and believable and dramatic when you say the next... Uh, you know, Moonbound mission is going to be launching from Cape Canaveral tonight. If you say the next Moonbound mission is going to be launching from Scunthorpe tonight, <laughs> it just doesn't have the same ring to it. There's nowhere in the UK that sounds as big and glamorous as so many locations in the US. So yeah. between those two things, there's no way that the International Rescue Brothers were going to have English accents, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> yeah in america we're just like okay well all all of the roman emperors had british accents right <laughs> everyone <Yes>. in egypt <laughs> yeah oh and of all course, of history empire, was british empire and the empire yeah yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah baddies in star wars can be british <laughs> right <laughs> i just i guess uh you know i'm like i said kind of been cramming a little bit so i was like yeah just kind of noting that is kind of kind of a weird thing in that mm. um Something that exaggerates it is the two biggest British characters have what sound like Americans doing fake British accents. Because <laughs> Lady Penelope's so posh, and yeah. then Parker's so cockney. Yes. Although you, my granddad does a... sound and look exactly like Parker. Any yeah, word that's supposed to have an H doesn't, and any word that is supposed to have an H does. No, just the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, Are you having Hanlough? Exactly, Hanlough. You're related to one a character from Supermarination and know another with your Captain Black chum. So this yep. is the, yeah, there you go. You're clearly intimately connected with this world. Uh, but yeah, they were. That the, even then, those English characters, those British characters, were heightened mm. to appeal to an American audience, with yep. most of which they never, never saw the show. But I think it did add to the the shine and the. The feeling of grandeur, the, the aims of the show. Yeah, especially back in sort of 60s through to the 80s. To a mm. British kid, American meant cool. Yeah. yeah. Even for me, actually, in the 90s, the cartoons and the TV shows I wanted to watch were the American ones. And when they're like when it was the British slot on whatever CBBC, it was far less interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah, we, we'd catch the BBC comedies on... Um... 
public television, you know, have geek whispers in the in the back of the lunchroom, I guess, in the States. So <laughs> Well then you'd remake them line for line with American actors. Oh yeah. If anyone's ever seen Red Dwarf UFA UFA UFA, oh. that is a that is a crash and burn. That is it's almost worth viewing. watching because it's such a crash and burn. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say if you're a big Red Dwarf fan, it is worth a watch, but just not for the good reasons. Right, right. It's like, what did they do right? Let's see everything go wrong, and, and now you'll you'll get it. But what did what? they do right? Reuse Robert Llewellyn. What did they do wrong? Everything else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, as far as uh, Thunderbirds and a, lot, and a lot of the 60s productions, I, I guess the really big charm that just you know hit me watching it after so much time is it's kind of like watching people work on the world's most expansive playset ever. Mm. I mean, you know, it's it, like uh, another Anderson. I just keep thinking of Wes Anderson too, where you know the Royal Tamils make sure to show you every room in the ship before we explore the ship. It's kind of kind of the same vibe. Everyone gets a code name, uh, you know, mm. obviously done very differently, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe, maybe UFO kind of being the missing link there because it's live action mm. and still has that weird nitty gritty detail to um, structure and technology. Yeah, yeah, they were becoming more grown up by then. But I think that these days the media bods would call it a play play pattern. It's got like replicable stuff built into it. Mm. Um, and so when you, as a kid, if you were born in the sixties and you got your dinky thunderbird 2 or in the 90s your matchbox or your vivid imagination thunderbird 2 uh it was something tangible physical real just like the tangible physical real thing you saw on the screen and there was an element of kind of toys come to life there was a direct connection which you don't necessarily get when you've got a toy that's been produced from a 2d animation or even a, a, a 3d cg animation Mm-hmm. Um, and then you add in the kind of, like you say, the code names, the launch sequences, the repeatable countdowns, um, all those elements where you could quickly replicate that in real life with friends uh, or on your own. Uh, it, it, it just had a natural connection where you could take it from the screen into your own hands and into your own into your own control. The same friend whose dad looked like Captain Black. Um, we s- snuck our Thunderbird 4s into our swimming trunks so we could play with them in the pool. He gives me a spin drink out. Yep. <laughs> a, a likely story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's my Thunderbird 4. Yeah, okay. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. This... time I've heard that, look, anyway. So. <laughs> but um, going back to the Japan connection, the only other franchise I can think of with that same thing of seeing the physical model and replicating it with the toy you buy was Power Rangers back mm. in the 90s. Yeah, A big part of the appeal, and um, our guest when we did our Power Rangers episode, it was the toys were almost exactly the model they used to make the films. Yeah, And so you could take it home, copy the transformation sequence, and like Thunderbirds, most episode follows exactly the same formula. Mm. So they're telling you, here's how you play Power Rangers at home. Here's how you play Thunderbirds yeah. at home. And I think we we would use just any old, you know, Playmobil airplane. Oh, it's going to crash. And then the Thunderbirds come and rescue it. Never got old. Another, I've been kind of having my 847th revisit of, you know, Kubrick films recently. And um, I would just think a lot of the shots, you know, switching, doing the switches, 
you know, lots of buttons being pressed. You know, Dr. Strangelove in 2001 do a lot of that too. And I, I just thought that was kind of interesting. This kind of 60s vibe that we really want to see, like the tech in motion. Uh, there doesn't have to be like any story movement at that point in time. I mean, in this movie, we watch Zero um, X, you know, building itself and taking off for like pretty much five minutes, which I think it's it, even from a toy perspective. From a mo- yeah, from a model perspective, that's awesome. You know, mm. if you were trying to put that in a film yeah. now, um, it doesn't go so well. <laughs> well, it's you're reminding me of the scene in um, Apollo Motion thirteen, picture. where she they lament that no one wants to watch the spaceships anymore, and I wonder if because um, both two thousand and one and Thunderbirds obviously predate the real moon landings, and was it just that once the moon landing was achieved? the world lost this fascination with just watching spaceships do their thing. Like they're up until that point, people are so happy to just sit and watch the meticulous details of plugging in the rockets and doing the switches and in real time, watch something fly to the moon. And then after that, there's, there's really no interest in that kind of very slow space cinematography. That's an interesting theory. I mean, I get. I guess there was no enormous payoff. You know, it wasn't like now. Now we're living there, and now you know, right. humans there. Oh, oh, they've gone and they've walked and they've come back. Right. So from a, a, a you know a Joe Public perspective, yeah, less exciting. But I will say that you you look at a show like Space Nineteen Ninety Nine from six years post moon landing, mm. and that show did go on to inspire people to go and do those things for real. So we know people working at the European Space Agency and NASA, who their first exposure to science fiction and to space was watching the, you know, eagles fly around and often crash on the moon. Um, And that was enough to get them excited about space. So it wasn't, it wasn't like a kind of switch moment where everyone's like, yeah, been there, done that. Got the, got the moon t-shirt. Oh yeah. Nothing's ever quite that simple, but (laughs) certainly I feel like for massive sci-fi geeks like me and Matt, like we will watch uh, Star Trek, the motion picture and love going around the enterprise for 10 minutes in slow motion Whereas I think that did fall off for the general viewing public and became yeah. more of a sci-fi geek thing. Yeah. And then obviously Star Wars comes out and completely all of that stuff's out the window after that. Mm. Thanks, Although Star Wars. Even that gives you the very long ship shots, you know, early yeah, on, but right? It, the long ship shots in Star Wars are never just, look at the spaceship, aren't spaceships cool? It's designed to intimidate you with the Star Destroyer coming over your screen. Or like it's it's exciting fight sequences. It's never purely just look at spaceships. Aren't spaceships great? Yeah, a few lasers on the way. One one thing I just loved in uh in, in this movie is the complete and utter impracticality of the uh, reentry. <laughs> like there was no way they were ever going to get two modules coming from different directions to properly connect and land. That's just <laughs> that's wow. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, they didn't deserve being international rescued if that was their plan. <laughs> no, no, that was that was the uh, the space 
No, that's uh, that's what I mean. They didn't deserve to be rescued of... by the Thunderbirds. Oh, oh, yeah. right. <laughs> I, I also I love that Mission Control is like one dude in, in this. Yeah, <laughs> who's apparently working twenty four seven for three months, guiding Zero X to Mars and back. So I also really like that Thunderbird Five is so close to a real thing. The only thing they didn't realize is you don't actually have to have a dude up there. Because, you know, a big communication satellite is a very real thing. But yeah. luckily, you don't have to have a guy who just sits up there and flips the switches in real life. Poor John. I know he can communicate straight away with Tracy Island, yet he has to listen to the stuff in that in Thunderbird 5. To it's Yeah, I mean, Th Thunderbirds is one of those shows where if you start to pull at the logical threads mm. that are exposed then very quickly things all come crashing down. Uh, but there's something that is so so heightened and so polished and so such high aspiration in terms of what they're trying to do that you can kind of forgive it and forget it for yeah. the most part. But yeah, the, the willful over-complexity of almost every man-made machine in that show means that it was doomed from the start uh, <laughs> you know or the the sidewind of this ridiculous u.s navy walking machine which at any moment could break its own leg but instead no ends up falling into a pit uh <laughs> yeah, like you said the zero x and it's ridiculous over complexity for launching and for for landing but that's kind of it's half the joy is yeah, seeing yeah, yeah. how complicated it is and then the myriad ways it could all go wrong and does it's, it's so pleasurable to watch a Rube Goldberg machine do its thing, even when it breaks, right? Yeah. 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 Something it that is. definitely Thunderbirds has given me is a lifelong love for seeing some kind of vehicle or machine that it's like, that exists for just this one little purpose. Mm. I'm sure we could have done it without building a truck just to do that, but I'm so glad we did. Yeah. And you see loads of that in Japan. It's like, yeah. what could be done by one standard digger there's five separate machines this one smashes that this one scoops that unsure it's wasteful but it's so charming what's well, like uh one of the one of the malls near my house they always have a guy directing traffic but there's a traffic light there <laughs> why is he there he doesn't need to be there <laughs> but you're glad he is um um luke you know what my favorite scene in this was <laughs> the dream sequence with the cliff richard of the shadows of course. I mean, I got, I got, I got my shadow CDs right here. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, so does anyone <laughs> in America know who Cliff Richard is? Just me. Okay. <laughs> I, I owned, I, I told you I sold a guitar in uh, June. That, that actually was one of those Burns guitars. Okay. <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> which for any music geeks, I was, I was trading in for a proper Fender strap, but I kind of, it did a few cool things so i was i i liked the recreation of uh the the gear as a as a music dork as well there so <laughs> one of my grandmothers was very into cliff richard and <laughs> one christmas we bought our friend dom who's been on this podcast now i remember we bought him a cliff richard calendar for christmas oh wow and like insisted he put it up in his bedroom <laughs> <laughs> Did I he? think briefly, I can't imagine it stayed up. <laughs> well, not more than a year. <laughs> Almost guaranteed there. Yeah, Cliff Richard is, um, you know, probably an acquired British taste, I would say. 
Uh, to be to be honest, I'm I, I think I'm a Hank Marvin fan, not not so much uh, okay, Richard okay. fan. But yeah, just just, yeah. just just to make things clear, that's that's more of what, what I'm into. Uh, of those of of these CDs, I just hold, held up only one of them has Cliff on it. So. Mm. <laughs> the, the whole. Do I want to know why wrong. the Cliff Richard Wikipedia page has a heading for Scottish independence referendum? Oh, <laughs> do I want to know where he stands on that and why he's but famous? Does it have a heading for Cliff Richard as a supermarination puppet? Mm, it does have Cliff Richard BBC litigation. <laughs> no, not that. Okay. Nope. <laughs> but I'll tell you what. There's something that's worth looking at. You you may have watched that dream sequence where Cliff and Co are singing uh, "Shooting Star." Um, uh, they you watch them the way they dance and perform and you think oh god that's very stilted puppet dancing that's a bit awkward well i can tell you that a few years ago uh, an archive in the uk recovered uh, a tape that dad and his team had filmed of cliff and the shadows performing that song so that the puppeteers could mimic their movements uh, that's on youtube uh, if you go and look it up and i can tell you that the puppeteering is 95% accurate oh, to I can how believe the shadows yeah. actually moved particularly Cliff's sidestepping dancing it's almost spot on so they really <laughs> went to town on the research and on the performance as well sometimes things look too real right I mean what looks yes, more real to you the uh the shuttle and Armageddon blasting past the moon or you know like the European space agency's footage of a probe circling the moon I'll tell you which one looks more real to me yeah. sure. And it has to do with blowing up asteroids. Of course. But also, the lyrics of that song are real creepy. It's like, yeah. you have to love me or I'm going to get my friends to kill you, essentially. That was the theme of most songs for the 1960s. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. It's the 60s. It's a different I was about time. to say, at least John Lennon wrote the same song. He just said he's going to do it himself. <laughs> All you need is love and a Glock. Um... <laughs> Oh wow! That, yeah, that derailed my thought. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> well, here's yeah, a thought for you. Oh, go on. I was just gonna say oh, the wow. vibe for me was very similar to the uh, Big Lebowski dream sequence. You know, it doesn't really do anything for the plot. It's just a, an excuse to put out like every insane whim in your mind, and I appreciate that for sure. Well. I feel like that dream sequence is just there to make this a bit different from a TV episode. Uh, I mean, it's there, I think, primarily because they were looking at ways to get more exposure. And I think Dad had a holiday home in Portugal next door to Cliff. Richard. Wow. There you go. And they basically <laughs> said, would you be in the film if we made puppets of you? And they said yes. And there it was. And they, they said that at the premiere... Uh, when the puppet of Cliff Richard came along, bear in mind he was a, a bit of a heartthrob at the time, wouldn't, you wouldn't think it now, uh, that a, a, a young lady in the audience screamed and was overcome with excitement at the sight of the puppet Cliff Richard. Right. So that says how big a star he was at the time. Oh, no, I can believe it, because my grandmother will go to her grave fancying Cliff Richard. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I do feel like I mean, obviously, live next door is a. Why wouldn't you ask, right? Mm. I was just uh, thinking by '66, 
at least from the American, I guess he never really broke in America. That was part of the problem, right? Mm, so no. for, for, from my perspective, by 66, it wasn't, you know, like the, the, the wave had crested. <laughs> that's maybe that's too esoteric music dork there. No, but, no, uh, I, yeah, I, uh, I don't think it was ever a kind of, oh, this will give it added international appeal. And if anything, every time an Anderson show um, involved uh, working with an actor or a singer, just because they wanted to it didn't really work out in my humble opinion because the only other example of that was a show called the secret service which basically there was a, a comedian in the 60s called stanley unwin who was famous for speaking a random nonsense language dad mm. thought he was hilarious and said i think we should make a show about you so they made a show for kids about an elderly priest who was also a secret agent and confounded his enemies by speaking gobbledygook nonsense. <laughs> so between saying, hey, Cliff, you're my neighbor. Do you want to be in this film? And hey, Stanley, I'm a big fan. Do you want to be in my TV series? Neither of those were particularly successful. Uh, so I think should be avoided for future iterations. Fair. Uh, that's where it just, it, uh, obviously the uh, the insane detail to design and these productions like more than makes up for it but <laughs> i mean very I rare so. you, <laughs> very rare you have someone paying that much attention to design but you you for especially the Mar super marionettes you force yourself to do that because now everything in the shot has to be thought out Here, here's something that i was definitely thinking uh watching the movie last night is I was having trouble just working out the scale of what they were doing like how big these sets were like was the Mars one that looked kind of like the moon? Was that giant? Because it really looked like a large set, whereas obviously the offices maybe are, you know, like literally the size of a dollhouse. I, I was having trouble working out the scale of all of this, basically. I mean, they made them as, as big as they could, given the budget and the size, the space they actually had. So I think on Thunderbirds, I'll go, they had a, a warehouse space that was maybe... 40 feet wide by 120 feet long. So nothing could be wider or deeper than that kind of, than maybe 30 foot to allow for lights and that kind of stuff. Um, so the zero X model on that shoot was probably eight feet long. Well, um, so they went, they went to town there and I've got some really lovely pictures of Derek Meddings just crouching down and working on it and putting some dust on the wheels and stuff. And, you know, this thing was pretty massive um some of the the landscape shots the kind of big overhead uh high angle scenery shots they were pretty large um and then they'll they'll have you know a lot of it will be based on the scale of the available bits and pieces they could find like toy cars models uh that they bought from the from a model kit store then they would build accordingly to how they could dress those sets so there's no there's no consistency of scale really whatsoever between the, the different bits and pieces you're seeing and then you've got a puppet which is you know 18 18 19 inches tall so um it it varies wildly but hopefully amazingly kind of works quite cohesively once you see the full thing you don't feel like you're flip-flopping flip-flopping between scales yeah i guess for me uh one of my other obsessions is you know theme park rides especially dark rides and especially epcot center you know back in the day and i i definitely feel like um these productions uh you know pre-ufo are pretty much like right between what say disney would do for one of their dark theme park rides and you know how you make a movie like 
the construction he sets has like a similar thought process of like forced perspective and uh mm. you know angles and all and on all, all that sort of stuff and like you know any in-camera effects would be similar to what you would have to do on like a a ride for example oh and of course any live action show which had effects shots was models back in the day and i guess the advantage this has is because everything is models and puppets you're never taken out of it when you cut from mm. the characters to the ships whatever you know yeah and and they perfected by then right they've been working on supermarination shows those puppet shows from the 1960s so you've got a team there maybe 250 people who have been doing this they know all the tricks they know how to get it wrong they know when things mm. really don't work um and they they kind of were at the top of their game, but the, for the first time on the big screen, so they push things even further, probably further than was necessary in many cases. So it does it does look pretty stunning. I think they've just done a 4K release, although I don't know whether that's an upscale or a, a new scan. But mm. it it looks impressive as something made in '66. Oh yeah, it it looks more impressive than the one that was made in 2001 or whatever it was. <laughs> we don't we don't speak about the 2004 no. one, like, to be honest. No. <laughs> There, are, I so I think this was my first time watching Thunderbirds Are Go last night, and I did notice there are quite a few things where it's just like, yeah, I guess that is how you make Thunderbirds a feature length movie. So having the hood in there because you've got to have a villain can't just be an accident for ninety three mm. minutes. Concentrating on Gordon as the young one feeling left out. No, Alan. Alan. Oh, Gordon. Yeah. Alan. Yeah. Alan. Gordon's a hipster. <laughs> Gordon's a hipster. Yeah. <laughs> just the little things. It's like. That they both did, but then yeah, being good is the thing that they didn't both do. <laughs> now we we talked about Team America kind of like um you know like curb stomping this vibe a little bit. I am curious uh, another one from America that kind of hits similar vibes. I guess it would be the the Venture Brothers. You know, specifically going for the the Johnny Quest vibe. Maybe you don't know the show, but involves like is, does this one make it to the UK? I'm vaguely aware of the Venture Brothers. And I know it does feature like a dad and his son's sort of adventure team. So there's definitely some Thunderbirds reference there. But uh, to me, he always felt more like a Reed Richards than a... Yeah, but well, I just uh, watching Alan having so much uh, low self-esteem in this one, I, I they hit similar vibes in that show, basically. Mm. So um, I, I felt like that was kind of a direct inspiration uh, a bit, so... <laughs> I do want to talk a little bit more about UFO in, in the book. So if, if last night I had been abducted by aliens, probed and managed to blow up the two person craft, uh, d- does that make me like a, a possible shadow agent? And, and what would happen at that point? 
you've I mean, been captured by aliens, you're in trouble, basically. that That's <laughs> it. I mean, they do all sorts of crazy stuff, turning people into human bombs, uh, <laughs> you know, really, really, really dark stuff, putting them in giant canisters of green liquid and taking them back to their home planet to harvest their organs for whatever reason. I mean, they never really quite explain it, and their motive changes, apparently, from episode to episode. Um but you might possibly be hauled in to, to Shadow uh, Headquarters to be interrogated by Colonel Foster or Colonel Lake, possibly. Um, so you get, you get bad cop first. You generally, I mean, it, you don't stand much of a chance if you've met the aliens in UFO. It has to be said, things are not looking good for you. Uh, I think maybe only one character really makes it out alive having met them. Uh, or a life for very long, so it's it's pretty dark. It's got a lot of the similar death vibes of Captain Scarlet, actually. <laughs> um, if there, there isn't at least one death, then it's a it's a strange episode of of that show. Uh, of the ones I, I've been scanning over the past few days, I, I definitely I had to make a beeline for for Mindbender because it's a you know one super trippy and two it's just like yep. hey let's just choose the studio. Um, I, I do a Twilight Zone podcast as well, where they often just like use the sound stage as a yeah. set. <laughs> so, you know, it's like I, I just I appreciate it when you like use your resources that way and make it creative. Oh, yeah. You know, working within limitations is just yeah. Well, it was kind of one of the great ideas of that to have the the secret headquarters beneath a film studio because it you know there is a good we can provide cover. There's a reason for it within the show. Uh, you know, if a UFO is found in some woodland somewhere by uh, some passers-by, then they, they can very quickly cover and say, oh, we were setting up for a, a shot and you walk straight through it and convince them somehow. But also, yeah, free free location shooting, essentially. You're already hiring the soundstage. You might as well shoot around the rest of the place. And for anybody who's interested in kind of film history and stuff, watching episodes of UFO, it was shot, shot in two blocks, one part at MGM, uh, Elstree and then it moved to Pinewood later there's lots of stuff around the lots at Pinewood uh, it's it's kind of like a fascinating semi-documentary type experience watching them move around albeit with you know aliens and firearms and time travel and all sorts of crazy stuff going on well when I watch the History Channel all of my documentaries do have aliens and firearms and crazy stuff going on so. <laughs> no change and, and one thing this is trippy um i uh, luke you and i know you've read a bunch of ufo stuff but just in like reality maybe possibly following fiction in december of 1980 we did have the uh, woodbridge incident do you know what i'm talking about uh i don't or, remember that one like, remind me it's just in december of 1980 there are a whole bunch of uh ufo sightings at a a um like an raf base so oh, okay it's, it's like when i was and I, yeah it just made me think of like hey i mean you know of course this is a ufo sighting in, in reality so yeah we have over three days i'm, I'm just having a look over here uh, officially reported uh lights descending into the nearby forest um it, it just yeah it just came to mind when oh I was well um UFO. yeah my dad worked for a company working on um computer systems for aircraft and um, he was working on the Harrier jump jet, which was the vertical takeoff and landing airplane. And yet, yeah, testing them in quarries, a lot of people reported them as UFOs. 
because people weren't used to seeing something that could fly like that. So, yeah, I very much believe that there were UFO reports around an RAF base. That's pretty common, I think, in British history. <laughs> but, well, well, the, the, the thing here is it was the, the uh, military itself reporting the sightings. Oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. That's yeah, well, there was um, a whole bunch of them declassified in the US recently as well. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, just uh, I thought that was an interesting little parallel and fitting the date. Um, we did not get those awesome cars in 1980. I'm a little disappointed by that, <laughs> but you know, what can you do? I want the orange one for sure. <laughs> yeah, the custom cars yeah, were pretty, like a, pretty cool. Like a nice smashed Hot Wheel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like in a well, cool they... way. But... They they were acquired by <clears throat> by individuals collecting them, um, and there was a radio DJ over here called Dave Lee Travis, who I'm sure, unfortunately, has become embroiled in one of these post 1970s scandals. But he owned uh, that particular car for a long time, and it was parked up in his in his garden, I think, in in Birmingham, in the Midlands, in the UK, uh, and and resprayed red. So. There you go. You never know. They might be floating around somewhere and you could still own one of those cars from UFO. Um, before we get gliding into our final stretch here, I do. I, I have a listener question for once to Ooh. throw at you. Is the listener your Ooh. wife? <laughs> no, no. The next <laughs> room be asking this question. Is it, are you nearly finished yet? <laughs> uh. the, the, no, yeah. No, this is about the, because um, you're working on the uh, the big finish audio dramas uh mm. that that's an ongoing thing is it so it is, yeah anyway his question so I'll, I'll just read the question verbatim from my pad here since the book seemed to be connecting the dots between ufo and space 1999 is there any chance of allowing big finish to do the same with the audio dramas even if it's an alternate universe kind of thing take I guess he wants to hear audio drones mm. filling in those 19 years in between. So <laughs> it, is, it is a long period in between. Well, if you listen very, very carefully to the end of the first Space 1999 audio release, there is a very familiar sound effect in there. Um, so, I mean, I'm kind of saying sort of already been hinted at to some degree. Uh, I mean, it, it's not up to me. I can't enforce what Big Finish do, but they are, they clearly inhabit a very similar universe so i'm sure in time you might see some nods but like you said there's 19 years between so you're unlikely to see characters from shadow appear on moonbase alpha um or vice versa but I, I think there may be showing up some more links between the two and why not everybody else is doing it in the world connecting up ips and these two actually did spawn from the same thing so i mean for me i mean uh, again i've seen the space 9999 especially the first season like a lot so for me like watching a few ufos in the past few uf days um <laughs> like i was like yeah this does i mean i i didn't it didn't really take too many like uh, mental leaps to connect the two they mm. seem perfectly fitting especially if you want to put two decades you know between them so <laughs> exactly um, no, they're definitely they're definitely there and in the and we did a the Space 1999 manual, which features uh, them finding abandoned launch silos from the Shadow Moon base. So, I, yeah, I think they are connected, and we're we're proving it. Mm -hmm. um, let's look a little bit about, I, I guess, just how it's all holding up. Like, like Luke said before, it it's holding up very well in Japan. I, I guess, especially Thunderbirds, just has 
it you know kind of has the smell of a Japanese property um, mm. in the eighties was Ultraman and and Thunderbirds you know back to back which kind of made sense that's something very appealing to kids here and I've been in Japan for the past twelve years so I I don't even know what to say for America I, I maybe maybe Jonathan Frake sunk that one I don't know. <laughs> certainly caused some harm to it that like that 2004 movie on thunderbirds all the japanese retailers bought in all the stock and then the stuff didn't sell so for the retailers they're like oh thunderbirds is a disaster now but it has slowly recovered and i think like the one of the main tv distributors over there tohoku shinsha was founded really off the back of anderson stuff so thunderbirds is just imbued in the in the culture uh, and it does fit so so perfectly. And even in fact, I think the is it. A, I'm not familiar with the Ultraman franchise generally. I must admit, but there's a new movie Shin Ultraman. Shin Ultraman, yeah, right? yeah. So there's a shot in there where there's a there's a kind of geeky character. Oh uh, yeah, there, yeah, yeah. He had shelves full of Thunderbirds gear, yeah. right? He had he had various uh, like geek paraphernalia, but there was definitely some Thunderbirds in there. Yeah, there you go. So it's still it's still part of the the zeitgeist, and we still get mentions of it here. People mention stuff on TV all the time. I was watching a, a sitcom uh, on Netflix, and within you know three episodes, there were two Jerry Anderson references. So it's all still it's all still there. Two thousand and four didn't kill Thunderbirds. Uh, you know, it's 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 nearly turning sixty in a couple of years' time, and there's a, there is that sense that it's not a really old show. Maybe not. It's not like it was in the nineties for kids, where they're like, "This might have been made for me," even though it was twenty-five years old at the time. But it still has got a timeless quality because it's so it inhabits its own world. Yeah, there's nothing else like it, and there's nothing else trying to be like it. No, like if if you know puppet TV shows had continued to be made for thirty years, I'm sure they would be indistinguishable from Thunderbirds at this point. But they weren't. No one no. kept making that kind of stuff. So Thunderbirds completely sits by itself. Yeah, and uh, maybe you know a kid these days would they handle the pacing of an episode of Thunderbirds? Who knows? But we did in the nineties, so yeah. But would they sit through seven minutes of Zero X launching? Maybe not. Well, not when they've got four different screens around them they could be using instead. <laughs> I don't know though, but with the colors popping out like it does, I mean, sometimes you know kids do get really like you're like, oh, they don't have the attention span, but they'll like obsess over like. A model like yeah, I visited, you might see like visited my friend Katie in the UK a couple of weeks back and she her son is only like a year old, maybe even not even a year old. And if they need to distract him, they just put on YouTube videos of just tractors and trucks driving around doing their thing and he'll sit mesmerized. So there is there is a an age or a genre of boy who will just sit and stare at vehicles moving for a very long time. <laughs> particularly in Japan where they'll sit and watch trains for ages.
And, and does anyone want to throw out a, a final verse on this? On we didn't get into it much, um, but the rock snakes are a cool alien. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was like, also kind of like, random and weird. Yeah, right. But, you know, I'd prefer that to the alien just being like a green dude. Hmm. These guys True. were not trained for first contact, that's for sure. Well, God damn it, they're astronauts, not bricklayers. <laughs> nice. They they <laughs> they did they did screw that up pretty bad. I will say this uh, this is kind of an exclusive, maybe it is. In uh, we're about to release this uh, Fireball XL Five comic anthology because all the shows be- existed beyond the TV episodes themselves, mm. and they went into comic form into you know sometimes hundreds of strips. And the, there's a Fireball XL Five anthology behind me that's got some new elements that bring in some crossover with Thunderbirds and Stingray and Captain Scarlet. And we have an answer to what the rock snakes are in there. That's kind of, it's kind of cool. Although, yeah, to say, if you want to prove that Thunderbirds is British and not American, it involves some explorers finding a big pyramid and smashing it to steal a piece. So there you go. Yes. The empire is still strong there. <laughs> All right. Um, tell us a little bit. Uh, the book's coming out next month. If you could uh, maybe say where to get it, as if there's a special edition, anything mm-hmm. like that. Special edition sold out, I'm afraid. It sold out in less than 12 hours. But the standard <laughs> edition, which is still beautiful, it's 208 pages, 100 and something, 150 plus new illustrations in there. Uh, and you can get it from, from jerryanderson.com. Uh, and uh it's yeah it's a beauty if you've if you've seen the moonbase alpha book it's it's a perfect companion to that if you haven't seen the moonbase alpha book then well you obviously should get that as well uh but it's it's like you've just been recruited and you are living in that universe you're about to take on the aliens and you need this handbook to make sure you can do it successfully so if you're planning on any alien encounters then this book is a must-have I think awesome. Luke, and, Luke and I are both planning on alien encounters. I've been counting down for my alien encounters since I was like eight years old. So. There you go. Well, we're here to help. We're here to help. Closest I've got yet is meeting Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Matt. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find us on Twitter at MLSFSPod. We're also on Facebook, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all of that. Make sure you like and subscribe, rate and review, tell your friends. And if you want to help support the podcast, keep it online and find other podcasts that me and Matt make, you can go to patreon.com slash podcastio podcastius. All right. Again, thanks for coming in today, Jamie. I've just uh I, I've actually, you know, like enjoyed spending the past few days kind of like just dipping my head into to all the 60s stuff. Like I said, I, I have a very strong space 1999 geek, but I haven't uh explored the other corners as much as i have recently so it's been fun yeah <laughs> i'm glad you came along and gave us the excuse because i've been telling matt we need to do a thunderbirds film this whole time i don't think i don't think his american brain could accept that no that is one of the pillars of sci-fi and does deserve to be covered it really is it, it's it's it sent people on a lot of different career paths uh, and changed a lot of lives and still remains a, a thing despite the fact it's made with puppets and that it's from 1965. So I'm glad you managed to dip a toe or your, in fact, your entire head uh, mm-hmm. into the world of Anderson. No, even as an American, I mean, like when I got the email, like, Hey, let's talk Thunderbirds. I'm like, yeah, we, yes, yes. That, that should be a thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I'm glad to hear it. Well, thanks for like... doing it. Yeah. Uh, 
Okay. That is a thunderbird in my pocket, but nonetheless, I am happy to have seen you. Slaughterhouse 5.